Hello and welcome to episode three of the Financial Marketeer interview series. I'm really excited about this one. This week my guest is Peter Ramsey, also going by the name of Built for Mars. If you haven't heard about it already, Peter is the person behind the epic study into the UK banking industry that sees him becoming a signed up customer of 12 different banks. It's a fascinating study into what banking in 2020 looks like and where the industry is falling short. Peter's work should be required reading for anyone working in the industry and the same goes for anyone responsible for user experience in their organisation. So please enjoy this interview where Peter and I discuss his study, what he learned about the banking industry and how he approaches UX analysis. So thanks very much for, for, for joining me. I've been blown away by reading through your study into the user experience in, in the world of banking and looking at different banks that people use. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, um, why, why banking? What made you decide to carry out a study into how banks are providing their experience? Yeah, so the, you know, the decision to do banking was basically because I was trying to think of, um, well, first it was like my friend's idea. But secondly, the reason he came up with it and the reason why we discussed it was we were trying to think of what's the industry with the most money and the least like feasible excuse to not invest in UX. Um, you know, like in tech, you know, Silicon Valley tech, it's like very common for, for products to have great UX. But outside of the Silicon Valley world, especially in the UK, like what's the industry that really should be on the top of their game? And yeah, I kind of settled on banking because you use the app you know, possibly on a daily basis. Um, you'll probably use the app every day for the rest of your life if you do use it every day. Um, and it's where you save all your money, right? So it's like it not breaking is really important. So it just felt like, um, you know, the industry where if I could show people a bunch of problems with banking, you know, that's probably the industry that people are like most interested in. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is fascinating because it really does impact on everyone's lives everybody practically has a bank and the fintech world and, and these sort of new online banks sort of draw a lot of attention but i think there's a there are quite a few people who are still nervous about you know they the fact they see them they offer a great experience but they're nervous about is their money safe with these firms um do, do you see in the, in the study you've been doing do you see that the traditional banks are playing catch-up still yeah, definitely. They're, you know, these traditional banks, um, you know, some of them are a lot further on than others, but they, yeah, they, they, there's a long way for them to go. Um, you know, the, the big, and there's lots of reasons, and, and maybe we get into it in a bit, but there's, there's kind of lots of reasons why they need to catch up. But, um, you know, fundamentally, these challenger banks are app first, they, the teams know how to build apps, um, and they've got no legacy debt right so um from a purely experienced point of view the, the challenger banks are considerably better just talking again about the what inspired you to, to pick up this this piece of work um who, who's the study for who, who do you want to read it and then have have it impact so i run i guess a blog it's like a ux blog but it's also so i, I do ux kind of advisory stuff um full time and then I, I started this like effectively blog to to help teach other people at UX and and I post stuff on there quite frequently, you know, doing teardowns of like companies that everybody uses, like Disney Plus, uh, you know, Spotify, uh, MailChimp, these kind of companies. So, you know, the banking study was really for those people who have kind of subscribed to my newsletter, who have an interest in UX. Um, what's happened is it's caught you know, because UX content has been around. I'm not the first person to, to do uh, teardowns and, and audits and stuff like that. But what I have done is I've brought in an audience of people who just love fintech. And, um, you know, they, they see the study and they read it and it clicks to them like, ah, okay, this is why Monzo feels so good. This is why Starling feels so good. Um, you know, and so it traditionally, like, like before I published it, it was for the subscribers that I generally publish content to every few weeks. But um, 
after that, it's kind of the, the scope has broadened, I guess. Um, but it was always intended to the to people who kind of have followed what, I, what I've done for a while. Yeah, because I mean, reading through some of the studies, it, it, it struck me that the, the bits that really resonate uh, are when you you pick out really in the case studies, you pick out small but very irritating problems like where the vertical alignment is slightly out and perhaps to the untrained eye, it feels wrong, but you just don't know why. And it's those things that really jump out at me. Yeah, well, it's always it's always the small bits, right? So, um, uh, you know, take take Disney Plus for as an example, right? I so I did a UX audit of them the day they launched in the UK, and you know, the most interesting things in that audit was stuff like, you know, the price is different on page two and four, or there are typos, or you know, you go on this page and this link is broken, and the point isn't that people are interested in typos it's that people are fascinated by the fact that these big companies make mistakes because as a small startup and when you're you know you're building something yourself you'll know that you make a lot of mistakes and you're embarrassed by it and stuff gets released and it breaks but when you think about you know these big organizations with you know some of the best people in the world working on them you kind of put them in this this realm of those guys just continually smash it but they don't and these ux mistakes come out and it's like why do they come out um it's not because the people building them are bad it's not because they're lazy it's it's for a bunch of other reasons and i think that's why people find it fascinating it's like it's like um those youtube channels that point out all the mistakes in movies you know where they're like you know this is game of thrones and here are the like 20 mistakes they've made um you know you're not interested in the fact that they left like a coffee cup open like on the table, right? That's not interesting. What's interesting is like the fact they didn't see it. Um, that's what's interesting. Something else that, that struck me was um, in the past I've been handed UX reports and they're, they're sometimes dozens of pages, loads of detail. There's, there's been um, loads of research, case studies, interviews with people, maybe user trials to, to deliver these studies. But what struck me was that what you seem to do with your case studies um, is to just go through something with a fine tooth comb and, and a keen eye. And, and often you can pick out maybe, I don't know, 80% of, of the, the main issues with, with a product just by doing that. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And no, that's, that's what I've built a career out of, of the last two years. So, um, you know what, I'll spend anywhere from, like firstly, I've got I've got a, like a sixth sense for problems with software, um, but also I'll spend like you know the best part of a, a week working. You know, when I help a company like build an experience or do an audit, like I'll spend the best part of a week looking through their process, going through it like sometimes hundreds of times, um, you know, on different devices and different browser sizes, stuff like that, right? And yeah, like. By actually spending a lot of time to look at something, you find a bunch of problems. And I'll find that on day four, I'm still finding problems on a sign-up flow that only has four pages in it, right? And it's because so many things go into the design and you know where the elements sit in that process. Um, but UX consultancy and UX, you know, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to badmouth anyone in particular. But if you just go on LinkedIn, I guess, and and look for UX consultants. Like ninety eight percent of them are dry reports, um, you know. And you look at the stuff they do, and you're like, this doesn't feel good. Like, you know, when I published those articles, a few UX consultants who had built the banking products that I was criticizing would would get in touch and basically like slag me off and say, you know you're really wrong about this, you're wrong about this. But when you when you look at the work they've done, you're like, how can you say that you understand user experience because this is terrible, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you're, you're putting together dry reports that uh, nobody really wants to read. So, so with this bank study, what I wanted to do was just, you know, point out the obvious stuff. It's like, you know, what I'm doing isn't rocket science. It's just being careful. Um, and pointing out things that when you see them, you're like, yeah, that's a mistake, right? It's not like super ambiguous, like psychology. It's um, it's pretty obvious stuff that I, I think I, I highlight. 
Yeah, because I think that the other sort of really interesting part of, of looking at case studies like this is that you uh, you can look at it from the point of view purely as the user without the context of the organization and how it works around it so for example there was a there was one app that had um on one screen it had the flags next to the country names and then on the next it didn't and mm. i'm sure if you if, if you were involved in making the app someone on the team will have a very logical reason why they didn't include the flags because it would have taken too long to develop you know to, to move it across its two different systems something like that but it highlights how important it is to look at it as the user i think doesn't it yeah well there's there's another part of that which is you know i've i've built products um and i've been involved in teams building products and you know you would like to think that the the combination of you know an app is is lots of tiny decisions and they are hundreds and thousands of tiny decisions but the product manager you know their role is to make all of those decisions or give autonomy to other people to make those decisions what happens with the flags is i'm sure that someone said you know oh we're building this thing and and one developer somewhere went yeah we're not going to do the flags we can add it later right and that ability to think yeah we'll just add it later if people want and then it didn't get released and then you know the designer maybe the designer gets to choose what the page looks like and the designer didn't like flags so they didn't put the flags in right so it's not like the like someone had a kind of um control over every piece and they decided to not use the flags sometimes it's just that no one really thought about it because everyone assumed someone else would think about it and especially in these big organizations um you know just missing functionality on pages you're like yeah i can see why you missed that because i bet that that wasn't on your radar when you had a hundred fires burning and you're trying to fix all the bugs and you really need to get something out because your boss was like saying this has got to be out by next week right like you take those shortcuts in the moment but then you never get around to fixing them and that's you know that's what i did that's what the teams i've worked on have done like that's just what happens but it's in the process of going back and either delaying releasing stuff until it's like exactly as you want it or actually going back and fixing the stuff you said you would instead of just working on new stuff which is always the like kind of more attractive route anyway um but i don't think that people actually make the decisions like consciously as much as like you know my analysis makes it look like they do yeah and i think Perhaps it highlights that, like you say, people can get drawn onto new ideas and, and then move on from something. But perhaps every every process of launching something new should include a follow up that somebody with a fresh perspective can can review it and maybe glue together all of those tiny decisions that have been made in isolation. Yep, and and then things things progress, you know, um, at like a, an incremental rate. So. If you just had one country that you were in, right? If if when one of these banks started, they were only in the UK, you wouldn't have a UK flag, right? Because that would just be the option. It's you're in the UK. And then what about if you have two countries, right? You probably wouldn't need a flag then. Like maybe you do, but you know maybe it's not necessary. But eventually, when you're at a thousand flags or you know ten thousand options, then suddenly you need searches, you need you know filters, you need criteria that can kind of categorize that data so when when companies get bigger and you see this all the time in data tables right when dashboards go from you know 100 entries to 100,000 entries they need to be rebuilt many many times over because the kinds of data you're dealing with and the volume of data changes the context of how you interact with that UI um, so a lot of the time the decision was made a year ago and then that company exploded and it's no longer relevant. So for like a new employee, especially like a UX designer or a UI designer who is, you know, and I'm inverted commas here, um, uh, only a designer, i.e. not an executive or someone who can make big decisions, you know, for them to challenge like things that were decided years ago and say, hey, you need to start building some more flag stuff, you know, most people wouldn't bother doing that they'll just work on the thing they're doing um but yeah like i don't know what the ideal scenario is but you know maybe every six months you reevaluate everything in your entire app if you're growing um 
possibly possibly quicker if you're growing faster right yeah 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 absolutely and i mean it's and if you're a huge coming back to the banks if you're a huge bank you you almost need someone just there looking at it on a very simplistic level and saying you know have we changed now and do we need to reassess um how well how we assess what we're building yep and you know for i mean the tail end of this is it's like automation uh like you know um autonomous cars have this big problem now but you know any kind of automation it's you know the tail end of the problems i the really edge case scenarios they're the hardest ones to build around and they represent a small percentage of the entire you know usage but um there are a lot of them and to fix them is really difficult but eventually they need to be fixed and it's the same with ux and you know same with loads of other kind of areas of life but in ux um you know let's take the hsbc onboarding right for someone living in the uk who you know perhaps in my position um you know not perhaps in loads of debt you know understands written english and verbal english um you know can phone someone whatever um that might be quite simple to use now you take that same app and you give it to someone who perhaps english is their like second language and suddenly you know the context of what you're looking at changes and so you would design an app differently and and actually that's where the name like built for mars came from it's it's building something that can be used on mars it's like a you know i guess um play on the, the sense of like building something that could be used anywhere by anyone um you know but you take someone who speaks english as their second language give them a normal app they might go you know what does sms mean i don't know right poor example but you do see what i mean it's um mm -hmm. you would build that differently so for for a company like monzo who's only in the uk they're actually dealing with a much smaller um there's a much smaller group of tail end issues whereas for a big bank who does hundreds of financial services and hundreds of hundreds of different countries to you know different devices uh, you know they have an audience of people who are in their 90s who don't have iPhones who still use telephone banking like you have all these problems um, so it's a lot harder for them to ever get around and solve them just coming back to the to the, the banking study when I was reading through it, it it sort of became well it looked to me like a lot of this was about assessing where in a lot of the cases, most of the brands offered the functionality that you were assessing, but not everybody looked at the experience. Is that is that the right way to be looking at this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I purposely picked features that most of them had, um, just for comparison's sake. But there is a, you know, you're right in that there's a difference between building something as an experience and building something as a utility, um, you know, the experience of freezing, your, I think freezing your card was one, right? I talk about this quite a lot, but you know, the experience of freezing your card is not just, the, like if you were gonna write a ticket, like, like a development ticket for freezing your card, for building that feature, you know, you would need a button that technically freezes your card. You would need, you'd have some backend tickets that were like, you know, freeze card equals on, right? Whatever. Um, you would have a, a page to put that button on. And that would largely be that. You, you know, you could probably build that feature in a very small number of tickets. But if you take those tickets and you give them to a developer, you end up with what the challenger banks have all built, which is a really a prominent button that freezes your card and then can be used to toggle your card back from to unfrozen. Um, but the experience of freezing your card, you know, if you think about the mindset that you'd be in when you froze your card, you know, perhaps you've just spent the last hour like running around your house trying to find it. You might have argued with your other half because you're like, you know, you thought they lost it. They were the last people who were holding it. You know, you've checked your car. Like you're probably pretty stressed and you're probably worried um so to you you don't want just one button to go yep it's frozen you want to know you know has anyone spent money on my card what happens now will you let me know if someone uses my card like do i have to cancel my card how long can my card be frozen for until or it can it be frozen forever you know can i get a replacement card while my card is frozen you know all these questions that you would only have in the moment of you actually wanting to freeze your card for real 
But when you test that feature, you know, in the office and you're like, you know, can we technically freeze our card? Yes. Brilliant. It's done. This is absolutely to spec. It's quick. It's easy to do. But then when you use it in the real world, in the context of where it should be used, it's super like it's built poorly, basically. Um, and that was kind of, you know, a summary of the third chapter, which is like, you know, none of the banks did a very good job of freezing your card, I don't think. Yeah, because I found it really interesting that you know, the, the banks attempted to offer this card freezing function. But the thing that struck me was that there's, there doesn't seem to be an agreed standard for what it means to freeze your card. And is it something that perhaps no matter how much the providers think about it, does it need to be set at a, a regulatory level where this is what it means to freeze your card? It won't work on Apple Pay. And if someone tries to use it, it will alert you. You know, does it need something like that to, to help? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, you know, some of, with Nationwide, you can freeze your card and still use it on Apple Pay. Some of the banks call it locking your card. Some call it freezing your card. Some call it blocking your card, right? So there isn't like a universal thing. It's it's just a feature that is completely software. It's, you know, the, the card is physically not blocked in any way. It's, you know, software is stopping that, that transaction going through. Um, and, and because every bank has developed their own thing, what's happened is you haven't got a general consensus of what it means to, to freeze or lock a card. And so, you know, when, when you actually get around to, to doing that, you have a lot of questions. And, and also that, you know, I don't know if I included this, this stat in the article itself, but at one point, you know, I found that it's like 5% of people have, have frozen their card four times. But that's the absolute max. Like people aren't freezing their card in real world scenarios like hundreds of times. So, you know, this is a feature you're using like at most, you know, as a mean average, probably like once or twice, probably once. Right. So this isn't the sort of thing you use. You then, you know, understand and then you use it again and again and again. This is probably something that you use once. And in that moment, you have loads of questions. Um, you know, you understand how the software side of it works. I, I get it. I can freeze my card. But then, you know, then what? Ultimately, I think it's an area that, that, that all the banks kind of built and then moved on to something else. Because perhaps, you know, and they have the usage of it, right? Perhaps lots of people don't ever freeze their card. Perhaps this is a feature that's, you know, people like to talk about, but no one actually ever uses. Maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I definitely fall into that group. I've, I've, you know, thinking of my own experience, I've never had a scenario where I've needed to freeze my card, but I've always liked the sense of safety knowing that I could do it gives me. Yeah, so so that, uh, we, so strangely, that was originally, um, I mean, with the article, so I, I've, I've recorded like hundreds of metrics that I've never published purely because I didn't have the the eyeballs kind of capacity to do it, right? Like I had to make them somewhat readable and, and you know, I couldn't throw everything in there. But one of the, the interesting points for that chapter was, yeah, you know, perhaps these challenger banks know that you don't freeze your card, but in their surveys and when they talk to users, their users say that it's reassuring that I know I can, which is why it's so prominent. Not because people use it, but because people... Are reassured that it's there a bit like a bit like the close proximity of like a fire extinguisher right it's like you may never use it you probably will never use it but knowing it's there it gives you some kind of value uh, more than the item itself and and you know that was something that i was trying to get across but um that was just one of the things that didn't make the cut really yeah yeah it's really interesting and i think um it, it sort of points to that idea that you set out at the start which is that is the success of challenger banks partly down to clever marketing and using that example you could, you could probably say yes yeah possibly uh, i mean i you know i doubt that all three of the challenger banks thought that long and hard about what i've just said um <laughs> i would be surprised if they are all doing that kind of double bluff uh feature i i, I think what's happened is they've either fallen into that additional benefit or all that additional benefit doesn't exist, or one of them did it and the rest copied because 
you know that's kind of what people do in software right they they look at the starling app and they go i'm building a bank starling looks nice i'm just going to copy a lot of starling um so i wouldn't be surprised if if lots of other people have built that stuff in because they've just basically copied what perhaps monzo did originally right another thing that, that sort of occurred to me whilst i was reading through the study and, and you may not have a, a sort of definitive answer to this but i was interested in your opinion about um something i hear about challenger banks all the time is that people are really impressed by what they're doing and what they offer and i mentioned this before that they're really nervous about the idea of shifting everything over to using one of them in favor of a of what's perceived to be a big safe traditional bank have you noticed anything whilst working through this that that shows the challenger banks kind of battling against this yeah uh, this is you know this is the biggest problem for challenger banks is you know they need people to deposit a lot of money um into their accounts to get paid regularly you know at, from for their business model um they also need people to take take loans and things but you know they want people to deposit large amounts of money and yeah you know i wouldn't be comfortable so i wouldn't be comfortable putting all of my savings into one of these challenger banks and if i sit and think about that i'm not sure why like i'm 100% convinced that it's irrational um and i even i think i actually say this in the, in the sixth one right which is I like the idea that I could walk into a branch, not because I ever do walk into branches to complain, not because I would really do that rather than just phone someone, but it's like it hits some irrational um, psychological desire that I have, which is, you know, because I can see the Halifax logo or the Lloyd's logo, right, on on a building in my local town, like I believe they exist, whereas Monzo is quite intangible, you, you know, I don't know where I would go to see Starling. It just exists on my app, on my phone. So um, they are against that that issue, which is, you know, can the challenger banks convince people that these banks are trustworthy enough to deposit large sums of cash? And I'm pretty sure that the answer is no, largely, um, because that's that's ultimately, you know, Monzo came out. Um, I can't. It was a couple of years ago, and it was something like. You know, this isn't the exact statistic, but it was something like 20% of users get paid into their Monzo account, which was impressive at the time, but it's like 80% of users didn't. You know, most users deposit very small amounts of money. And I think what that means is people are using traditional banks and they're using challenger banks. So the challenger banks haven't displaced the incumbent banks. What they've done is the challenger banks are like uh, like a spending account version of a bank account. Um, you know, and yeah, I don't know how the challenger banks will, will get over that kind of perception, really. Another question I had was, so whilst you've been working through this, what have been, have there been any particularly surprising findings? Going into it, I, I knew that the challenger banks would do better than the incumbent banks. Um, I guess I was, like, I wasn't expecting the challenger banks to be this much better in some areas, like, you know, international payments, as an example, um, you know, without looking at the at the graph, I would have said, yeah, well, you know, some of these banks may charge £10, say, uh, you know, whatever. But when you actually look at the, the hidden fees, the FX fees and sender fees, whatever, and you add it all together, um, the cost to send money abroad, so the cost to send £100 into a US dollar account um, with the challenger banks, was below one pound forty. So Monzo was one pound thirty six, and I think Starling was sixty p, and I think Monzo uh, Revolut was free. But with Santander and Metro, it was it was in the twenty nine pound something, you know. And so to me, I was like, why would anybody pay thirty pounds to send a hundred pounds? Like, who is still doing that? Like, is their usage not zero? Right? Like, does not does everybody not see that and go, this is insane? Like. You know, so I guess I knew the challenger banks would be better than the traditional banks, but you know, as a sliding scale of zero to thirty pounds, that's quite a you know quite a big jump. Um, so I guess that was surprising. But then there's lots of little parts of of like the study that are like you know 
the challenger banks were 30 times faster in this and you're like how is how has that happened right that's like a real achievement yeah because i think one of the main ones was um in opening an account it's 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 incredibly fast to open up a an account with a challenger bank the other interesting thing was how you how you noticed that they seem to be shifting the definition of what it means to have your account open for instance having access to the apple pay card uh version of the card straight away yeah no that was like devilishly clever um you know i was pretty i was pretty in awe when i realized what they were doing like at first i was like you know well, that's cool you can use your apple pay and then i was kind of thinking about it and i was like actually i can now go use my card right and and yeah what what they've done is you know either one of them and it's the same story right i don't know who did it first but i bet the person who did it first either thought about this and made a conscious decision or just thought they'll try it right and everyone copied them because it seems like a good idea but um you know being able to make that psychological change is like very smart and very well executed you know um I think they'll all do that eventually, basically. And I, I think it's actually better than that because so Revolut, I'm pretty sure from people I've spoken to that you can only um, get a MasterCard on Apple Pay instantly and Visa like from their tech stack takes slightly longer, which is why, because some of these incumbent banks I've been, I've been working with since the study came out. And I know that on Visa, it's, it's a lot more difficult to get like instant access to a Visa account. So I'm pretty sure what Revolut do is they give you a Visa card in the post, but they give you a temporary MasterCard account, um, and then they and they switch them around. I'm pretty sure that's what happens. Okay, that's yeah, that's interesting. It's it shows just how important that part of the process is for them. Yeah, or they're not doing that, and like they've just found some way to do it. But that's like the workaround I thought of. But Revolut are getting around it somehow. Um, which is good. It's really smart. Yeah, and, and it's something that, that I've heard in lots of places that the speed of which you can open an account is one of the big draws to, to opening one of these things. And actually, I suppose the, the effort required to open an account, give it a go, is, is relatively low with these challenger banks. Yeah, yeah, which is strange because 10 years ago, if you know, there was something about opening a bank account 10 years ago that was like you know you might only open three in your life you certainly wouldn't open 12 right uh opening a bank account was the sort of thing you already had a bank account why do i need another bank account right um and then when monzo you know at the time they were called mondo and they were like a, a travel wallet and i think starling was out then but i hadn't actually heard of starling but when mondo came out it was like they kind of made it acceptable for you to have another bank account and I don't know if this is general like consensus and people agree with me or not, but you know, from people I've spoken to and, and my own experience, like I, I think what these challenger banks did was they made it okay to open multiple bank accounts. And so, you know, these incumbent banks aren't approachable in that way. Like if you look at HSBC, when you go on their website or whatever, and you try and open an account, quite daunting they're like you need all this stuff we're going to do credit searches like you know you're going to have this for 60 years whatever but the the like vibe that these challenger banks give off is very much hey this is an app you can sign up like a regular app and then you can spend some money um you know they actually word it not like a bank they they make it quite disposable yeah yeah i agree and i think the other thing i've noticed over the time is that i think it's um Revolut, whether they still do this, they, they lead with the idea of um, of working with different currencies and exchanging money. So mm. I, th I think they, they try to pitch themselves as, you know, if you're going on holiday or if you if you have uh, if you travel a lot, you're going to uh, you could use this card because changing currency is so much easier. Yeah. You know, since when did any incumbent bank open their marketing with anything that you actually wanted other than we'll like the you know the the market position of these incumbent banks got so bad that they literally approach students and say we will give you 50 pounds if you sign up with us <laughs> right like their product is not the reason why people sign up with santander 
it's because they go, we will give you money if you just come on and sign up with us. Isn't that crazy? Like, imagine a SaaS company that was like, you know, imagine if MailChimp were like, you know, not that we're going to give you a free month use of our service, but they went, we will give you 50 pounds in cash if you just sign up with us. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, never happened. But in banking, because the products are so similar and they got so boring and people, you know, weren't paying attention to the financial services, like people didn't want to pay attention the average consumer would never consider signing up to another bank. And there's so much friction that they were literally paying people in cash to bother doing it. Um, but you'd never see Revolut give people money to sign up. They, they open with a reason. They're like, you know, you can buy cryptocurrency. Do you want an account? And people are like, yeah, I want cryptocurrency, so I'll sign up. Um, it's a totally different way of bringing people in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of um, I was at school and... Uh, the bank that I'm with came in and made it, they sort of sold themselves to everyone. So you signed up, you could have a, an account, put a pound in it, and they give you a really cool little file of facts to take away. And all the kids were very impressed yeah. with that. And I've been with that bank ever since. Yeah, I, I, you know what? Same story. I, my first bank account was like a 16 or it was like a 12 year old or 16 bank account. And they, I think they gave me a very similar thing, like a piggy bank or something, right? Um, uh, you know, and I would almost go, that was a smart idea. Like I wouldn't, I would say you're giving them something there, fine, whatever. But as an adult, you know, as an adult without savings, let's say you didn't have enough money to make use of the additional 0.001% interest rate, right? You're, there's no reason to pick HSBC over Santander over Lloyd's, right? Um, that's their problem. But with these challenger banks, they find like, I guess, an edge you can kind of see why you would. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully the work they're doing is, is going to help to push everyone forward. Have you know, have you seen anything? Like, I guess um, there's quite a few examples throughout your study where, say, for, for instance, Barclays did quite well in certain areas. Is it, are they being pushed forward, do you think, by the work of the challengers? Yeah, so the, the challenger banks, um, you know, let's, if, if, if you agree with me that, uh, you know, people typically didn't open lots of bank accounts. Um, you know, it was very rare to do so, and people would only have a few bank accounts. If you imagine, you know, people also don't talk about bank accounts. Like, they, you don't go to your friends, and you're not sat in the pub going, oh, I've just signed up to Lloyd's, and the app's amazing, right? Like, you would never bother. It's, like, quite boring. Um, well, I would, but it's quite boring for most people. And, you know, with that in mind, most people don't have an understanding of the ecosystem of fintech apps. So someone who only banks with HSBC, um, you know, would not know if Lloyd's had just bought out a great new feature. They wouldn't know if, you know, uh, NatWest had just improved their app and it was twice as fast. Like these incremental gains are done in secret because no one talks about banking apps uh, no one cares about banking apps and no one uses other banking apps. So it doesn't matter how good the first direct app was because I use Lloyd's and so I'm not going to see it. And so what the challenger banks did when they came and, and it gave people an excuse to sign up to another bank was it gave them a point of reference. Um, you know, so people who had just signed like because I was only with one bank when I signed up to Monzo for the first time. Right. So in that moment, when I signed up, I went, this is so much better than my bank. Right. I didn't know that it might have been that another bank was just as good as Monzo. Right. But but to me, that was like eye opening in that banks can be like great apps like everything else. And so what the challenger banks have done, even if they all fail and never make money, what they've done is they've given people like general consumers an idea for how good banks should be. And now they've forced banks to raise the bar. So, um, you know, the, the incumbent banks that I work with, they're, they're very aware that they are not as good as the challenger banks. Like, they're not idiots. And they're not, they're not like, oh, it's fine. We're just going to keep going with what we've got. Like, they desperately want to be as good as those apps. But they find it difficult for, for a bunch of reasons. Um, but they know that these challenger banks have basically just, you know, pulled the, like, magician's like black, I don't know if it's got a word, but like the magician's black uh, blanket over the box 
and and inside they've kind of revealed kind of how good something could be um so i think yeah they've you know they've they've certainly made other banks up their game and in particular you mentioned barclays like barclays did really well and i spoke to the person that was on the i spoke to someone who was on the team at barclays who built that journey and they were they were great like they were really good they they work for another bank now but they um you know they were on the top of their game and and they would have done really well in any other any challenger banks kind of ecosystem as well just changing um topic then completely I, I wanted to ask you a bit about um your experience in um starting your own fintech firm um so i wondered if you could just tell me a bit about uh, because you, you launched move them what was that experience like that's a completely different thing to what you're doing now i guess yeah yeah well so i started moving when i was at uni uh like six months away from finishing a four-year course uh in business anyway so i launched it and it wasn't a fintech company it was like a property company so um the idea was was TripAdvisor, but for student accommodation which hasn't been done very well yet to this day and i still think someone should do it really well um but yeah that was like tough i think anyone that started a company knows how tough starting something like that is lots of times we nearly ran out of money um lots of times we nearly had to close but you know kept in the game by like the skin of our teeth um but yeah successful story in the end but like it was um certainly different we, we pivoted about halfway to be uh you know to be this fintech product that used used open banking actually funnily enough um to to do some pretty cool stuff but um yeah it wasn't a fintech company like to begin with i guess yeah okay so it kind of morphed into that i mean what what you, you mentioned there that it was tough and are there any particular challenges that, that stand out you know with, without perhaps establishing a new brand in a new space is it, what was that like yeah yeah so so we were um we were in an so the industry was tenant referencing was that that was what we ended up doing um and the tenant referencing industry is very dull and very it's like there's like a duopoly on it basically um you know very hard to get into and you have you have people who have huge economies of scale who can you know say there are two million tenants in the uk i think there's like 2.4 million tenants in the uk or something that from memory you know some of these companies are doing seven hundred and fifty thousand references a year so you you know if you just take away the three biggest companies you're looking at the vast majority of um of kind of the total user base so they're getting huge economies of scale they've got relationships like multi-year deals with some of the biggest agents so it's so difficult almost impossible for any company to step into that space um so we were really really up against it in that we we weren't going to win on brand alone we weren't going to win by hiring a sales team the only way we managed to to win really was by building something that was technically 10 times better than anyone else had built. Um, so, so what we ended up building was purely like a, a technical kind of challenge. It was, um, can we make something possible that wasn't possible before? And what it was, was um, instead of, basically when referencing, you have to give some information about yourself, normally send over like a bank statement and you would say, um, you know, I earn this much money, I can rent this house. And what we would do would, we would say, okay, well, we'll look in your bank account and we'll verify how much money you have, how much money you earn, and then we'll, we'll let you in the property like straight away. So what would take a week, we could do in like a minute. Um, and that was before open banking. So that was in the days of like dodgy screen scraping and stuff. So we were, we were like one of the first companies to use open banking. Um, so we really caught that upwind, but that was the only way we were going to win there. So it was super challenging in that, you know you don't have like we had to raise so much money um to just stay alive we weren't going to be profitable within you know for a very long time because it was just too difficult to get the clients but but we knew that we would have like a technical um a technical kind of 
victory as it were if we just succeeded in building the thing we thought we could yeah sure i mean because i you said there about the difficulty in getting the clients I, i was going to ask you know how how did you get clients was it a case of just effectively doorstepping people and then introducing the product or did you rely on some sort of word of mouth pr something like that i mean what worked yeah um i think most most founders if they're honest would say it was scrappy like we didn't you know i didn't have a strategy of this is how i'm going to get my first hundred clients or and if i did it didn't work um i might have done but you know the first i think every client we had was super scrappy it was like a phone call you know perhaps they sent an email perhaps like i ran into them somewhere um you know we were still at, by the time we got acquired we were still in the phase where we hadn't we, we were still in beta so we had launched a beta product not released a full product so we hadn't um actually signed up that many users but what we did have was a bunch of people who had said like this is great can we join the waiting list so um probably a bit unusual in that sense we we hadn't kind of built a a pipeline as it were mm. yeah it's really interesting um and having gone through that that whole experience would you is it something you do again be a founder of that type you know that type of business yeah yeah well you know my heart is in founding a company and um yeah built for mars was so i you know when i look back at all the jobs i did as a CEO, um, you know, I enjoyed fundraising and I also enjoyed building a product. Like that's the bit I really enjoyed. I didn't enjoy anything else. Like I, I didn't really enjoy managing a team particularly. Um, I was fortunate because the guys, it was a small team. So they were very self-sufficient. Like uh, it wasn't really much management, but I didn't enjoy it anyway. So it's like when I, when I left that, um, I just was helping like friends build products and, and it was never going to be a business and then friends of friends and then friends of friends and I did that for like a year right and so um, I wasn't doing it for for the money I was doing it because I enjoyed it and um, that was how I wanted to spend kind of my my days just helping people build fun stuff and so it's only recently that Built for Mars like I only incorporated Built for Mars as a company yesterday um, you know, up until then, it's been a blog. And, and it's only now that, like, I'm fully booked now, basically, for the rest of this year with, like, UX work. Um, so it's only now that I'm, like, taking on much bigger product projects and, you know, people are booking me six months in advance as opposed to, like, you know, a month in advance. So it's a, it's a business now, and I love it now, and I guess I am a founder now, but um, that was never really my intention. Like, being a founder is really hard work. Uh, but yeah, if you do, if you do it for the right reasons, it's really rewarding. But yeah, good stuff. Um, so, so just coming back to uh, back to Mars then, and, and the this the, the banking study. What? Uh, so there are six chapters now. Are there more chapters to come? Um, so there there won't be more chapters of the bank study like in the format that I've done the previous ones. I'm working on a follow-up, um, which which will outline some stuff that's changed and some new things. And um, did you ever watch The Tiger King on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know when they did that like follow-up episode? Yeah, where everybody was uh, socially right. distant from webcam. Yeah, yeah. And, and then that guy had like a new set of teeth and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm probably going to end up doing my like Tiger King episode seven which is, um, you know, here's what's changed. Here's, you know, how the banks have reacted. Because some of the banks talk to me very frequently about improving and, and they are serious about up in their game. And, and what I've done is given them basically a free roadmap of like, here's a hundred things to build, right? Um, and it's like, what, what do they do after they built those hundred? How many of those hundred have they built? And I can already see, you know, in the app store if you go on the app store now you can see the banks are updating their apps quite frequently like every time i see that i go on and i have a look and you know a lot of the time i'm like ah they did listen they've changed that that link is now doing this or you know they fixed that typo so i think it's interesting because the banks that don't do anything and the banks that don't engage with it you know what are they doing right like 
if if someone can and bearing in mind that those articles got you know tens of millions of impressions right so they have been seen by the entire fintech community like around the world like you know they're talked about everywhere which is amazing right but bearing in mind that these banks have all seen it and I've all spoken to them, the ones that do nothing for a year, wouldn't it be interesting to say like, oh, Santander still haven't fixed this typo. Do you know what I mean? Like, what are they doing? Why are they sitting on that? Um, so I, I may do an, I may do a seventh one of that, but I, I wouldn't do any more, um, any more chapters. But the, the publication format of here is an industry that I've um, spent a long time researching and um, gone into more detail than anyone else. Those that format of publications, I'm doing probably going to end up doing three a year. Um, yeah, so there'll be more content like that, but it wouldn't be on banks. Yeah, nice. So yeah, I mean, it must be an, an incredible amount of time it takes to to build something like that. Yeah, well, it took me about six months to make this make the the bank one. Um, a lot of that time was, you know, I had to build the website and. Um, also, I was doing it a lot of it during like, the coronavirus initial breakout, right? So uh, obviously, I was, you know, spending a lot of time looking at the news and worrying and all sorts of stuff. So, in in a world where I can just get on with work, I feel like I could do three or four a year, but they take months. And you know, hopefully, hopefully, the amount of effort that it, hopefully it's clear that a lot of effort went into it, and that's why people. Um, you know, take the time to read it because ultimately to get a minute of someone's attention is quite hard these days. And, um, you know, my approach is definitely quality over quantity. I'd rather put out three things a year that people are like, oh, Built for Mars have released some more stuff. Like we can, you know, we know it's going to be good. And so we'll read it rather than, you know, SEO rich kind of content every week. So as usual, a huge thank you to my guest, Peter Ramsey. Please do check out his study at builtformiles.co.uk. We'll be back soon with the next interview in the series. So until then, keep an eye out for the latest marketing news in finance over at financialmarketeer.com.